Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc at isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. As we close out the Gospel of Mark and we finish our series, Shocking Savior, we're kind of getting to the, to the end of Mark's Gospel. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15. There are 16 chapters. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15 with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, two of the most shocking statements in the entire Gospel of Mark, maybe the entire Bible, are said. And these two shocking statements really kind of reshape our way of viewing the world, of viewing other people. And so I want to really kind of start that conversation in your mind. I want to ask you a question that don't feel like you have to answer it, especially out loud, because that would be embarrassing. But maybe in the silence of your own mind, you can ask yourself this question. How do you view those that disgust you? How do you view those that disgust you? And what I mean is not those you disagree with, but those you're disgusted by. What I mean, and I use that term to, to say, the people who've committed, say, some sort of evil action or some sort of indiscretion that, that just makes you feel like they're not deserving of compassion. They've, they've kind of gone past the line of what is worthy of somebody's mercy and compassion. I'll tell you, I'll just confess for myself that I was talking with Pastor Clifford, the, the guy you saw baptize a couple people, and I was talking with Brent, our facilities manager, who is just both awesome guys, and at our Wednesday staff prayer meeting, I just confessed. I confessed that I feel that I'm not as compassionate as God wants me to be. And here's what I realized is the line of my failure tends to be the line of my compassion. And here's what I mean by that. If, if someone has done something like I've done, like and we all make mistakes, right? We all have moments of weakness. We all have moments where we display the brokenness that's in our heart. If somebody's done something similar that I've done, it's so easy for me to have empathy with them, to have compassion on them, to feel like they're, they're in need of mercy. They should be forgiven. They should get a second chance. But what I've noticed is if somebody crosses that line and they, they do something that I'd never think I would do, they do something that I couldn't even imagine myself doing. If they cross that line, it's hard for me to empathize with them. It's hard for me to, to say that they're deserving of, of compassion and mercy. 
And I know that doesn't sound like that's not the pastor answer. That's not the Bible teacher answer, right? Well, let me tell you, I've struggled with this um, since really junior high and I would say up to now. And when I was in junior high, my cousin was brutally murdered by a white supremacist gang in the town that I grew up in. And, and I remember them finally catching my cousin's killer when I was in college. And I could still remember where I was on that college campus in Southern California when I got the call from my stepfather telling me, hey, here's, here's what happened. They, they finally caught her killer. And I remember, I remember what hand I was holding my flip flown in. And, and, and I remember him saying that, like they, they finally caught him and, and convicted him. And it was strange because it didn't feel a sense of relief or even justice because we're not getting her back, right? I mean, it still felt there was something there, but there wasn't the resolution I wanted. And so I was talking with Pastor Clifford and I was talking with Brent and I just confess, I said, you know, if I'm really honest, if I'm just honest with what's going on in my heart, I don't want her killer to experience the forgiveness of God. God is a God of justice, and he is a God of mercy. And I love that he's both those things to me. And I get to experience both those things. But this guy, I only want him to know the God of justice. That's what I want. Because I am disgusted at what he did. And so I want you to entertain that question in your mind. Those that you are disgusted by. Those that that have done things that you would never think yourself to do. Does that line of your failures or that line of disgust, is is that the same line you have toward compassion and mercy and forgiveness? As we jump into the, really the last part of Mark's gospel, we're going to see two very shocking statements. Two of the most shocking statements in the entire gospel and I think even in the entire Bible. And in these two shocking statements, our whole view of the rest of the world is going to change if we let it. And let me just kind of unpack what those two statements are. And our big idea for this morning, so if you're going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. You're going to see these kind of two statements. The big idea this morning is this, the son was orphaned so that the orphans can come home. The son was orphaned, meaning God the son was abandoned at the cross. And this is shocking to think that uh, uh, two members of the Trinity could kind of break fellowship for a moment. But this is exactly what happened to the son of God and he will express that in agony, we'll see in Mark chapter 15. And what this will do, the son is abandoned, he's orphaned, and now this allows everybody to get in. Every orphan to come home. And the orphan in our passage this morning, who's going to come home, is very similar to the man who took the life of my cousin. That even those that we think are way beyond the pale of grace and deserving of mercy are the very same Ones that God welcomes back into the family if they'll turn from their sin and confess him as the Lord of their life. And I think these two statements here will reshape our understanding of how we view the world. How we view people who have hurt us, people who disgust us. We won't see them as enemies, we'll see them as orphans. Children who need to come back home. This is how God views the world. 
Yes, he sees all the evil intentions of our heart, all the vile practices we commit, but he sees his creation, his beloved creation, the one that he has designed, who bear his image. He sees them as wayward children who need to come back home. And he loves them so much, he's willing to orphan his son to get those orphans back in. Let me show you this. Mark chapter 15 with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 15, we're going to start with verse 33. Mark chapter 15, verse 33. First, we're going to see, again, the son being orphaned, the son being abandoned, and then we're going to see how this opens the door for all the orphans to come in. Verse 33 says this, at noon, the darkness or darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Now, this seems just like a small detail. Darkness in the middle of the day. We're from the Pacific Northwest. We get that all the time, right? This is not standard weather for first century Palestine. It's not. And it's not just a small little comment that Mark is picking up. I think he's setting the stage for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He's showing that this is happening, and this is strange weather, especially during this season and this time of day. Some people have tried to give like natural explanations. Well, maybe there was a sandstorm or maybe there was some like strange eclipse or something. But no natural phenomenon makes sense of this season and this time of day except for something supernatural. And I think what God is doing is God is setting the scene showing that he's about to curse his son on the cross. If you remember from the kind of the I'd say the very beginning as we were walking through the Bible in, in January, when we we're talking about the plagues of Egypt and we we're talking about the Exodus and God moving his people from the land of slavery into the promised land. And God did that movement by kind of giving out these plagues, these supernatural judgments upon Egypt that would really surrender their will over to what God would have them to do. And one of those plagues was the plague of darkness and that's I think what's happening here he's showing him that God's hand is set against the son he's being cursed and look at how the son and his words kind of confirm that idea so there's darkness and then we get this from the son verse 34 then at three o'clock Jesus called out with a loud voice Eloi Eloi lama sabachthani which means my God my God why have you abandon me very interesting words from Jesus the son of God notice just how he starts my God my God this is very interesting Jesus was just praying in the garden of Gethsemane right before his crucifixion and when he addressed God he called him father when Jesus was teaching his disciples how they should pray he said here's how you're going to pray you pray father what's Jesus doing here He's not using that term. He's using kind of the generic God. I think what he's doing is showing us that there is this distance being created right now. Now, I don't think Jesus has lost his love or devotion to the Father because he's still my God. But there's a distance. He doesn't feel that kind of uh, parental, if you will, relationship, that familial relationship. That language is lost. Family language is gone right now. And why is that? Because he's abandoned. He's abandoned. Some of you in this room, you know what that term feels like. To be abandoned. We could translate it as forsaken or left behind. 
Right? Maybe that's part of your story. Right? Maybe your biological father was never around. Found out that your mom was pregnant, left. Right? That's in my family. That feeling of abandonment that will stick with you for, for, for a long time. That's what's being described here. The son is being orphaned. He's being abandoned on the cross. What a shocking statement. Now notice how it's phrased, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think it's correct to read this as a question. And I know you're like, wait a second, Paul, there's a question mark, which marks it as a question. <laughs> I don't think it's a question. And I think we know this even in the English language. We use questions all the time, not because we're ignorant of some information, because we want to make a statement. I'll give you an example. Yesterday, we're moving. As we're moving from Beaverton into Hillsboro, right, I'm, I'm walking around and we've got three kids, or four kids. We have three kids. <laughs> Sometimes I want one of them to go. <laughs> I'm not going to say which one. <laughs> but but I, I, I like turn the corner and like, you know, there's stuff everywhere. There's furniture everywhere. So my youngest, right, my two-year-old is standing on top of his changing table at the very top, like four feet in the ground, just standing there, like ready to jump, like a weirdo. We're like, what are you doing? You're a kamikaze pilot. He's just going to leap off, right? You enter in that room and you say to yourself, what are you doing? That's not a question. I'm not expecting an answer. I'm making a statement. I'm saying, you idiot. Now, I didn't say that out loud. That was, I said it in my heart, though. <laughs> right? Like, what are you doing? Your little legs. This is not going to work. We, we use this phrase. Or we use phrases like this. This is not a statement of, of Jesus confessing a sense of ignorance. It's not a question. This is an expression of agony. That's what Jesus is doing here. Because Jesus knows why he's dying. He told his disciples as they were going closer and closer to Jerusalem, on several occasions, he told them, hey, here's what's going to happen. We saw this last week. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen. For even the Son of Man, like we said last week, the favorite term that Jesus used for himself, his favorite title, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen on the cross. He would die. He would suffer. He would sacrifice himself. Why? To pay the ransom. To free us from the penalty of our sin. To deliver us from the, 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 the slavery of our sin. To bring us back to the Father. Jesus is not asking a question, why is this happening? He's not ignorant of its cause. It's like when you're, you know, walking through the living room and you stub your toe on the table and you say, why? You're not asking, well, what happened is I moved my leg. You're not, you know what happened. You were there. It's an expression of agony. It's an expression of abandonment. That's what's happening. This becomes even clearer when we realize Jesus in his question there is actually quoting a song. In some sense, you could say he's singing a psalm. It's a psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 22. Jesus is quoting the first line of Psalm 22. This is a song that Israel sung hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. And Jesus, when he's feeling abandoned and forsaken by the Father, 
on the cross because the father is now seeing, instead of his son, he's seeing on his son's sin. And when he sees sin on his son, sin is what he is opposed to. And so looking at his son, he can't say, this is my beloved anymore. He says, this is what I'm opposed to. And that's why he abandons the son. And Jesus, the first thing he thinks of is this scriptural song sung by the people of God for hundreds of years before Jesus ever comes on the scene. Look at the first line of this song. It says this, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Jesus right now is singing this song, a song of abandonment, a song of of agony. He, He connects with this psalm, with this song. He says, how can I express what I'm feeling right now? I know it's that song, that song of Israel, that song of my people. Now, this is not how the song would continue on. It it, it ends in a very bright way. It ends with the hope of deliverance. Look at verse 24 of Psalms 22. Look at how it ends. For he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but has listened to their cries for help. The song finishes out. Yes, it starts in agony. It starts in pain. It starts with abandonment. But then it ends on a high note. You haven't forgotten me. You won't ultimately turn your back on me. And Christ knows that he will be resurrected. He will be victorious over death. But for a season, for a stanza, for a chorus, he's abandoned. He's forsaken. And so this is the song that he sings. The son is orphaned by the father. Shocking, remarkable that he would break fellowship for a moment for your sake. And then we see this orphan come home. The guy we would not expect to come home. Look at this. Let's continue on in Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, we're on verse... I'll get there. I don't have enough ribbons in my Bible to keep flipping all over the place. There we go. Mark chapter 15, we're in verse 37. Oh, no, sorry, verse 35. Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and lifted up a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down or comes to take him, yeah, down. Well, what is being, what's going on here? Now, I think this is very intentional. I think Mark is so good at putting his gospel account together. We have to remember, Mark did not record everything said in the ministry life of Jesus. I mean, that was three years of Jesus' ministry life. You can read the gospel of Mark in like an hour and a half. So clearly he hasn't included everything. He's selective in what he includes. He's putting these details together to express a point about Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that he's not being accurate, it just means he's being intentional. He's lining things up. So why does he include these words here? I think he's setting us up. Look at what these guys say. They say, I think Elijah's going to come. Jesus used the, the term Eloi, which is the Aramaic for my God, which probably sounds like Elijah. And to the Jewish mind, as they read the prophets, and they were correct in how they read the prophets, they believed that Elijah, this great prophet, who's been dead for hundreds of years before Jesus ever came, 
They thought he would kind of usher in the age of Messiah. God's hero in the Old Testament that was promised to bring everybody back into a wonderful relationship with their God. Bring them back to prosperity. They believed because of the prophets and what they wrote that that Elijah would have some sort of relation here. Some sort of connection to Messiah. And so when they see this they think oh. Maybe this is the time. Well, let's preserve his life. So they, they dipped in the sour wine, which was the drink of the Roman soldiers at the time. They lifted up there to sustain Jesus. Let's just keep him alive long enough. Maybe Elijah will come. Now, why is Mark including this? This is why I think he includes this. These guys who say this have to be Jewish. They have to be familiar with the Old Testament scriptures to come with that kind of conclusion that Elijah is coming. I think what he's showing us is these Jewish believers who should know who Jesus is are confused. And then the character he's going to show us, who is firm and clear on the identity of Jesus, is not who we would expect. He's setting up this kind of contrast because he wants to show the door is wide open for all orphans even people we wouldn't expect we'd expect these guys to get the right answer but they're not the guys who get the right answer look who gets the right answer verse 37 then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom when the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died he exclaimed This man truly was the son of God. This is crazy, just the kind of the the setup of what's going on. There's this miraculous, so we had this kind of, this display of darkness. And now we have this miraculous uh, ripping of the temple curtain. Now there's two two curtains at this point in the Jewish temple. There's kind of the the courtyard, more common area. Then there was a part of the temple that was called the holy place. And there's this really big curtain right here. There was another curtain from the holy place into what was called the Holy of Holies, where only a priest would go occasionally into that place. That was the place of the most concentrated presence of God's kind of glory. So there was a curtain there and a curtain there. One of these curtains was ripped into, or maybe both. My guess is the one that was ripped was the outer curtain. Because this would be like the public sign. People would see it more. If it was the inner curtain, then only priests would know that this happened. I think what happened is they saw this tearing and, and a lot of people saw it in the courtroom. And those, those kind of uh, uh, curtains were a symbol of limited access. Only certain people could get close to the presence of God. That's where we are in the storyline of God. Is God is bringing his creation back to himself. We're at this stage where there's still limited access but with the death of Jesus Christ something happened now the doors are flung open or the curtain is ripped open now everyone in the courtyard can see the holy place and they can have access now the presence of God there's no way uh, uh, to be removed from it it's it's an unencumbered kind of action toward the presence of God everybody now is allowed to get in This is how Mark sets it up. And who gets in? A Roman officer? A Roman officer? How does this guy get in? He says, truly, this is the son 
of God. Now, some view this as, well, we don't really know much about this man, and that's true. We don't know much about this man. We have some uh, church history or stories in church history that talk about this man later, but it's hard to know if they're accurate. What we have right here in the gospel is somewhat limited. We know this man's phrase, truly this was the Son of God. You can actually, in the Greek, translate it, truly this was a Son of God. Now, that's not how I believe you should translate it. I think the construction is actually different. It leads you to this translation. This is more accurate, but you, it's a possibility. So, so maybe what this Roman soldier is saying is, no, truly this was a Son of God, like a divine man, like a, like a Hercules or something like that. Maybe that's what he was saying. Well, just think about that. Should we really be skeptical about this man's confession? Think as a Roman soldier who would admire triumph and, and victory and battles won in war. Right? The, the, the epic tales of Hercules. The, those kind of dynamics. What would impress him about a beaten, bruised, bloody, naked man dying in agony? Would he be impressed? No, I think something else has happened to this man. He wouldn't see this as a triumphal moment that would, that would, that would be compatible with his understanding as a, as a Roman. In fact, Paul makes this very clear. Look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. Look at the, the skepticism about the message of the crucified Jesus. Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians uh, 23, sorry. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles, so non-Jews, that would be Romans, say it's all nonsense. If this man was just naturally thinking in his Roman worldview, nothing would impress him about what is happening to Jesus. I think something else has changed. And I think Mark includes that because he believes it's genuine. Again, Mark is an, is an author and an editor. Right? He's bringing in all these different accounts and there's a, there's a sea of things he can choose from. But he only picks some and he arranges them and puts them in place. Why would Mark choose to bring these words out and write them down in his gospel if he didn't believe it was authentic? If he didn't believe it was genuine? Especially because this idea of son of God is the whole theme of his gospel. From the very beginning, he's been trying to teach one point. Jesus is the son of God. Of God, the opening verse, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, makes this clear. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Here's the remarkable part. This soldier is the first human being to actually confess that in his gospel. Not the disciples, not the religious leaders, not Jesus' family. No, a Roman soldier is the first one to confess Christ as the Son of God, at least the first human being. We see the Father at Jesus' baptism. We see him at the transfiguration. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. He speaks of Jesus as his Son. Demons, on several occasions, before Jesus casts them out, they shriek, it says in Mark's gospel, and they confess Jesus as the Son of God. But no human being has confessed Jesus as the Son of God to this point. And Mark puts that confession on the lips of a Roman soldier? Think about this. What does this guy do? He's standing there watching guard over crucified victims. At least what he's doing is he's preventing loved ones from rescuing 
the people being crucified. But it's not hard to imagine that this Roman soldier could have been the very one who put the nails in Jesus' hands. He could have been that guy. Maybe his job wasn't just to stand guard, but maybe his job was actually to carry out more of the elements of the crucifixion. We don't know, but at least what we know is this guy represents the Roman occupation. He is an executioner, and he gets in. He confesses Jesus as the Son of God. Wow. Not the disciples, not Jesus' family, but a Roman soldier. Think about how scandalous this would have been in the first century world. That a Roman soldier really has the heroic moment in the Gospel of Mark. Wow. Would not the first century Jews being occupied by Rome be disgusted with that Roman soldier? Every time they saw him, they would think of what they lost. They would think of taxation. They would think of how they're under the military might of Rome. And yet it's a Roman soldier who says that's the son of God. Everybody, everybody can get in. God's love is limitless. The line of compassion. Well, there is no line. No line. Do I have a line? Yeah, if I'm honest, I do. I know my line. It's what that man did to my cousin. That's my line. Is that right? No, it's not right. Do I need to grow in that? Yeah, I need to grow in that. But I got to be honest with it. I got to be honest. Because I love hearing about the mercy of God when it's directed toward me. But there are times when that mercy is extended to people who are beyond the line of my failure. Yeah, I have a hard time letting them hear that. I have a hard time wanting them to hear that. I want to be more reserved in that. But the only way my heart can grow and the only way your heart can grow and the only way we can see the world as spiritual orphans is we got to look at the crucified Son of God as portrayed by Mark. He is dying. He is being orphaned so that all the orphans can come into the family of God. I'll tell you, my eagerness to see sins forgiven does not anywhere near match the eagerness that God has to forgive sins. And I need to grow in that. And, and maybe you need to grow in that too. Maybe you're further along than I am. Praise God. That's awesome. But imagine if we were as a church filled with those people who saw the world like God saw it. Like God saw it. That we saw the world around us as spiritual orphans. Those that would even take life, we would say, we want you to experience the forgiveness of God and we'll be the ones to tell you about it. Imagine that dynamic. That's only going to happen. That's not going to happen anywhere in the world except for the church of Jesus Christ. There's no place you're going to find that radical level of compassion. And that level of compassion will change the world. It, it did change the world. It changed the first century world. It could change the 21st century world. A church committed to that level of radical, ridiculous, scandalous, maybe even reckless compassion. 
to love those that are even executioners and killers. But when we look at the scriptures, what do we see? We see horrendous sin forgiven. And it doesn't take long in the pages of scriptures to see it. That murderers can be forgiven. Adulterers can be forgiven. Sexually immoral people can be forgiven. The list goes on and on. If somebody repents of their sin, no matter how weighty their sin, he'll forgive. Man, I can't imagine the impact and the persuasive nature of our church, what it would be if we embraced that level of compassion. What would that do? That would change the world. Because that is alien. That's from another planet. That's from a distant place. Because that's not what man prides itself in. And that's not what man is inclined to do. That is something supernatural. That's something out of this world. That is something Christ infused in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's radical. It's reckless. It's, it's dangerous. It extends us. But I'll tell you what. It is the most persuasive light to this world. That's what Jesus is talking about when he wants us to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Is he wants that level of compassion. All the orphans get in, man. All of them. No matter the offense, no matter the rap sheet, no matter what you've done, you repent, you come in, the blood of Jesus can take care of it. If you have never embraced the forgiveness of God, friend, hear me today. There is no limit to his compassion. Do not believe the lie that maybe you've told yourself, you've heard other people say, that you don't deserve to be loved because of what you've done. Nothing disqualifies you from his grace. In fact, all of that shame that you list on through your head, guess what? That qualifies you for grace. That's why the son was orphaned. He paid the cost for your adoption through his abandonment. And he welcomes you, come back home, come back home, be wayward no more. Come back home. Even to those that would crucify him, he says, you come back home. And so I'm telling you today, come back home. He loves you. He knows your name. He knows your story. He knows all the hidden sins. He knows the depth of your shame. And he still says, come. This is why I abandoned my son. So I wouldn't have to abandon you. Don't, don't let shame keep you in your seat today. You come. Come to the Savior. I love at this church that we have leaders and members who see the world as orphans and not enemies. We've got two guys, uh, Pastor Keith and, and Henry, who are going to be traveling to the country of Vietnam. They're going to come on stage uh, right now with me and join me. These men see the world as God sees it, filled with spiritual orphans and not enemies. People need to hear the message of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And we are so excited to be supporting them, to be sending them, to be a church that wants the world to know the saving message of Jesus Christ. It doesn't want any more orphans to be out there, but wants everybody to come back in to the family of God. Uh, Henry has been working. You can clap for that. Henry has been working in his home country of Vietnam, training pastors, planting churches, digging wells, doing whatever it takes really to get the message of Jesus Christ out to as many people as possible. So as a church family, we're going to commission them in that direction. So I want to invite you to do this. Will you stand with me? 
I want you to stand with me and, and I'm going to pray a prayer of commissioning over them. We're excited that they see the world as God sees it. Filled with spiritual orphans who need to come back into the family of God. So I'm going to ask you to do something just as a symbol uh, uh, of kind of showing that you are in agreement with the prayer that I'm about to pray over them. If you want to uh, participate in this, if you just extend your hand towards the stage, just as a symbol, if you feel comfortable to do that, just to kind of show them, hey, my church family is behind me. My church family loves me and they're praying for me. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Oh, Father, we are blindsided by your love. We are overwhelmed by your compassion. Christ, it is incredible the depth of love and mercy you have for so many. I, I'm, I'm amazed by it. I wish I had that kind of depth of compassion that you have, and I don't. I wish I did, but I don't. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd work it in me. I thank you for these wonderful men who are going on, a, on an awesome journey and an adventure to extend the compassion and mercy of our God. What a wonderful thing. We as a church family, we want to applaud them. We want to support them. We pray, Father, you bring them back. Protect them as they're out there. Increase just the, the, um, the harvest of what they're doing. We pray it, it returns well, this investment that, that we're making. I thank you for these men. And Father, would you just continue to grow us as a church, to see the world like you see the world full of orphans that need to come back home, not enemies that need to be defeated. No, orphans who need to be persuaded that the Father loves them and wants them to flourish. Oh, Father, create that in our heart and let us see that just infect the world around us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.